Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 48, Revelation, One Like a Son of Man. And in this episode, we are going to tackle Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, which is the beginning of the things that John himself actually sees in this particular vision that he receives. And in this episode, we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at two things. John's understanding of the description of the churches to whom he is to send this vision and to send this message, as well as the very one who is standing in the center of the vision given to the seven churches. And so we're going to look at Jesus again as one who is like a son of man that we will pull again from Daniel chapter 7 and continue to unfold the themes of just how it is that Jesus is the son of man and how Jesus is the Lord And how the two of those things dovetail together perfectly for the benefit of the churches and for the benefit of the world. And so I hope you're um, excited to jump in. We won't, again, get very far, but every one of these episodes is continuing to build with more and more important and significant truths that you will continue to see the reason why we have taken so much time at the beginning as we continue to work our way through the book. So let's just jump right in. As we begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 1, 12 through 16. Here's what it says. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now, as this passage begins, the apocalyptic genre takes center stage, and we truly see for the first time some of the power and the genius inherent in apocalyptic literature. You see, um, apocalyptic language can do what other language cannot. It can take two seemingly separate ideas and put them together, but not by simply adding and or something like that, but rather by breaking the rules of our understanding of reality in such a way as to help us see reality differently. And this principle comes to us in just six words. I turned to see the voice. Now, if we take the time to read slowly, we will notice something rather strange here. Voices are things you hear, not things you see. Now, that that might sound obvious to you, but John most certainly says that he turned to see the voice. Again, Voices are not things you see, but rather things that you hear. And this idea of hearing about something or hearing something and then turning and seeing something separate, this idea shows up multiple times in Revelation. And it is an apocalyptic strategy of combining two separate things and forcing us to hold them together in our minds as one reality. What John hears 
and what John sees go together, but the way they go together help clarify both what we hear and what we see. So the voice, you may remember, came from verse 10. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. This is the voice that John is interested in seeing. And we're told that the voice was loud and sounded like a trumpet. And we saw in episode 47, your brother and partner, that hearing trumpets in Israel throughout the Old Testament signified a number of different things. The Lord descending to meet Moses on Mount Sinai was accompanied by a trumpet blast. The Lord entering his temple, also accompanied by a trumpet blast. Trumpets were blasted to call the troops to battle. They were, called, they were blasted to call the congregation to worship. And on the Day of Atonement, trumpets were also played, signaling the liberation of God's people and land. So again, trumpets signified the Lord coming to meet his people, entering his temple, calling troops to battle, calling the congregation to worship, and proclaiming the liberation of God's people. So the voice that John hears from the fact that it sounds like a trumpet brings with it all of these themes. And so John turns, of course, as would you, to get a glimpse of just what the one speaking like this looks like. Somehow there is someone speaking to John, bringing the Lord's presence to him, entering the temple, calling troops to battle, the congregation to worship, and proclaiming the liberation of God's people. This message, this voice, is speaking to John and has instructed him to share what he sees with the seven churches, the congregation being called to worship. Those that Jesus has already identified as the people God himself, through Jesus, has liberated. These churches, then, are the troops he's calling to battle, and the place where the Lord enters his temple. The church, the New Testament often tells us, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it shouldn't really come as a surprise to us at all that when John first turns to see the voice, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. John sees both the one who brings the presence of the Lord to his people in the temple and the people that same Lord liberates, calls to battle, and calls to worship. The place where God's people gather for worship is in his temple, and his temple is the people he's gathered to worship him there. John initially identifies this people as seven golden lampstands. Seven, of course, referring again to completion or to the full amount of something. And as we've already seen, John is to share his vision with these seven churches. And so we can conclude that the seven lampstands are the seven churches, as Jesus himself makes clear for us in Revelation 1, verse 20. So here again, apocalyptic language is helpful for us. By identifying these churches as lampstands, we get a necessary clue as to the church's purpose and calling. 
We'll need the Old Testament to help us define just what lampstands were for, but our understanding of the people of God being the place where God's presence dwells, i.e. God's temple or his tabernacle, means that it will help us if we go back to when the Lord first gave instructions regarding how the tabernacle was to be built and what some of its functions were to be. And so if we do that, if we do go all the way back to the book of Exodus when the instructions for the tabernacle were originally given, and we come to Exodus chapter 25, we find something rather illuminating. Pun, of course, not intended. In Exodus 25, 31, we read this, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And then after giving a brief description of that for the next several verses, if we skip ahead to verse 37, we are given the lampstand's purpose. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Now, I I want you to understand what's going on here. A lampstand was to be constructed out of pure gold. Seven lamps to be exact, were to be fashioned on this one lampstand, and its entire purpose was to give light on the space in front of it. When you come to Exodus chapter 25, you don't dive right into this description of the lampstand, but there are a number of verses that precede this. And the section that immediately precedes this section on the lampstand calls for a table to be built out of wood. The purpose for this special table is given to us in verses 29 and 30, and here is what they say. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now, this may all sound strange and foreign to you. Um, it oftentimes used to do this to me until I began to understand a few things. But what in the world is going on here? Why a description of Exodus? Why are we back in these strange chapters of Moses receiving instructions for the tabernacle? Um, allow me to explain. The table was a place for plates and dishes and bowls and drink offerings. In other words, this table was a place for a special meal of some kind. And on that table, the bread of the presence was to be set, which would remind the people of the Lord's provision for them in the wilderness, how he provided for their every need, and as Jesus later identifies for them, the Lord gave them bread out of heaven to eat. This bread of the presence then was a visible reminder to the people of the Lord's provision for them of his taking care of them, of his being with them in the wilderness. And placing all of the dishes and utensils on this table along with the bread of the presence was the Lord's way of encouraging the people that his presence would most clearly be with them all in and through a shared meal together, in and through the priest's participation in the bread of the presence. We spent an entire episode of this podcast discussing how all human beings were created to function as priests, not only in God's special space, but in the entire creation. Go back if you would like and re-listen to episode 11, Work It and Keep It, where we noted that these two verbs, work and keep, 
were used to describe what the priests did in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Only in Genesis 2.15, which is where we were beginning that discussion in episode 11, these verbs are used with reference to all human beings. And don't forget, according to Revelation 1.6, Jesus has made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. And how was it that he made us priests? He did so by allowing us to participate in the bread of the presence, which was offered to us most fully in Jesus himself, the bread of life. In fact, the church's celebration of communion then becomes our celebration of the Lord's provision for us, that he has provided for our every need and has promised to always take care of us and to always be with us. Now, why am I telling you all of this? Here's why. On this table in the tabernacle, in what was known as the holy place, was set the bread of the presence. And directly opposite this table, also in the holy place, was the seven-lamped golden lampstand. And we are told in Exodus 25, 37, that this seven-lamped lampstand shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. And what is in front of the lampstand? That's right, the table with the bread of the presence on it. So the lampstand's entire purpose in the tabernacle is to give light, to shine light on the bread of the presence. That's it. The lampstand was to shine light on the bread of the presence so that the priests serving there could see what they were doing. And this is John's point in referring to the churches as lampstands. We are God's temple. We are his congregation gathered for worship. We are his troops called to battle. We are his liberated people. We are his priests. And the work that we are to do, our task, our calling, as priests gathered for worship in his temple, is to shine light on the bread of the presence, to shine light onto Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. And this is what it means to be his witnesses in the world. And so it is these churches, these light bearers, these witnesses to Jesus that John first recognizes when he turns to see the voice. But these churches are not the voice that John had heard. No, but rather the voice was coming from someone in the center of the lampstands. And verse 13 explains it to us. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, son of man is a phrase we've seen before. We looked at it in episode 45. He is coming with the clouds. And it's a phrase that comes from Daniel chapter 7. God's answer to worldly beasts and worldly kingdoms wreaking havoc in the world and just what exactly God intends to do about it. And this son of man is a divine figure of some sort who receives a kingdom from the ancient of days, a kingdom that will never end. And as we've already noted, somehow there is someone speaking to John with a voice like a trumpet, bringing the Lord's presence to him, entering the temple, calling troops to battle, 
the congregation to worship, and proclaiming the liberation of the Lord's people. This one, this Son of Man, as we saw in episode 46, the Alpha and the Omega, he is the Lord. And even the way John describes what he sees when he looks at this Son of Man bears striking resemblance to the Ancient of Days himself, as well as Ezekiel's vision of the glory of the Lord recorded for us in Ezekiel chapter 1. So let's take just a few moments and I'd like to show you a few comparisons between those two passages from the Old Testament. For example, in Daniel 7 verse 9, we read this, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Pure white clothing and pure white hair. No doubt signifying this Ancient of Days as, well, ancient, wise, all-knowing. Or, as a friend of mine often puts it, he's seen a few things, therefore he knows a few things. And I would say that that is absolutely true. And the throne that this Ancient of Days was seated on was fiery flames, flames of judgment, purifying flames of righteousness, right. And so listen again to how John describes the Son of Man that he sees in Revelation 1.14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. The same ancient wisdom and all-knowing characteristics are applied to the Son of Man. Combined with the flames of fire being connected not merely to his throne, but to his very eyes. In other words, the Son of Man sees with pure righteousness and judges with pure judgment. He knows all things, and he alone sees things as they truly are. This is what is signified for us by eyes that are like a flame of fire. You and I are not encouraged to picture a human being with little candlelight flickers in the place of irises or pupils. That is not the apocalyptic way. Rather, the image itself communicates meaning beyond simply giving us an artistic drawing. This is primarily why people get so flabbergasted and confused when they read Revelation because the apocalyptic genre simply is not familiar enough to us to prevent us from making these very comfortable one-to-one -one correlations. So the simplest way to put this is to compare it to the one-to-one -one correlation that might in fact be in your mind and then to use the power of metaphor to reconfigure the way we think about these things. So eyes like a flame of fire does not mean that Jesus' eyeballs are literal candlelight flickers of actual fire. What it means is that the way the Bible often speaks of judgment and purifying fire and being refined as gold where the, the, the dross is removed from the top and what you are left with is something pure and, and clean and wonderful, having that purifying idea attached to what someone can see is provides an explosion of meaning for us. 
And I kind of just jumped right to that conclusion in saying simply that he sees with pure righteousness and judges with pure judgment. He knows all things and he alone sees things as they truly are. This is an absolutely central concept to grasp. Every one of the seven churches will be required to mess with the words of Jesus where he tells them, I know, I know what you are dealing with. I see things as they actually are. Sometimes the words I know, which are in fact given to every single one of the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three, sometimes the words I know, or from Jesus, I see, sometimes those words provide immense comfort because he understands the struggle that they are facing while trying to remain faithful to him in a world that does not care about him. The messages to some of the other churches, however, the words I know can prove tremendously terrifying because the things that many times, even in churches, we desire to cover up because we are embarrassed about them or we are ashamed about what is actually going on in the hidden places of the heart, Jesus knows those things too. And his encouragement for the churches is never that they would be afraid of him because he knows. It is that they would recognize that because he knows, they need to bring those things into the light with him. Let him deal with them in the way that he knows best and then set us on a path toward freedom. This is what I ultimately believe the church needs to position itself first in line to have done. But John goes on, and we'll go on too by looking at this passage from Ezekiel, which gives us a little bit more insight into this son of man. Ezekiel is given a similar glimpse of the Lord on his throne, but with slight variations. When he sees the Lord, he sees a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And that's from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 4. And if you really want to scratch your head someday and thought Revelation provided a bit of confusion for you, go try reading Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel is at way more pains and confusion than John ever is in trying to explain what it is that he sees. And Ezekiel uses tons of phrases like, well, it was kind of like this. It was sort of like that. I don't really know if it was real. Maybe there were wheels happening on this throne and they were kind of going in four different directions. It's almost humorous to see him attempt to put language to something just uh, awe-inspiring. But this metal that he refers to, verse 7 tells us that this metal sparkled like burnished bronze. Well, look again at Revelation 1, and what do we find about the Son of Man? In verse 15, it says, His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Well, right now we're back to this furnace idea, this purifying idea, and it says his feet were like burnished bronze, whereas in Ezekiel, the legs of the image that Ezekiel saw were like burnished bronze. And so here in Revelation, to identify Christ's feet as burnished bronze refined in a furnace, hints at and suggests something about his moral purity, his moral stance, where he walks, where he goes, what he does. 
This will become particularly clear in Revelation chapter 2 as it will become the basis for Jesus' demand that those among whom he walks, i.e. the seven churches, must reflect his purity in the midst of an immoral society and their temptation to follow suit. And this stance is made all the clearer with the constant references to brightness around the throne and the Son of Man's face like the sun shining in full strength. There is just an intense brightness here. So bright, in fact, that no darkness of any kind can exist in its presence. 1 John 1.5 captures the idea the clearest. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And so what do we have here? What we have here is the Lord himself coming to be with his people as the Son of Man. He is in their midst, remaking them as priests, calling them to worship, calling them to battle, gathering them in his temple, announcing their liberation, and calling them to be light bearers in the world to his goodness and glory. This is our God, and we are his people, his lampstands, and he's in our midst. He will always be in our midst. And his presence with us radically shapes the way we see ourselves and the stance we take in relation to the world. And so it may help if I simply sum it up like this. The amount of light you are willing to allow Jesus to shine into your heart will be in direct proportion to the amount of his light you are capable of shining onto others. And so Jesus will relentlessly shine his light onto his own people first. This is always Jesus' way. And before we can position ourselves to actually be effective witnesses for Jesus, effective light bearers, we have to first and continually allow his light to shine into our darkness. But remember... The purpose of the lampstand was to shine light on the space in front of it, right? And so the purpose of the churches being called lampstands is to shine light onto Jesus, right? This is why Peter, in explaining the church's role as a kingdom of priests, defines our witnessing this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so if I were to attempt now to combine the idea that as a lampstand, our role, our calling, our mission, our purpose is to shine light on Jesus himself, and then to couple that with the fact that the church is called to be the light of the world, which does imply that we are shining light into the dark places of our world as well, we are doing two things. We are shining light onto Jesus. We are standing first in line to be among those who is willing to have Jesus's light shined into the darkness that is in our hearts, 
while simultaneously being eager and willing and used by him to shine his light onto the dark places of our world as well. But I do want to make a slight qualification because having been in the church for a number of years, it is much more commonly accepted to believe that the church's main role is to stand on the truth and to proclaim the truth to the world, merely pointing out the ways that the world is living in darkness. And there are times, even in churches, where quite often things are spoken about, and rightfully so, but things are spoken about almost as if we are gathered here in this space to only point out the ways in which our world is in the dark. We, we, we stand, we, we know we're the light, we know Jesus is the light, and so we say, okay, well, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about you know, darkness in the world by exposing the darkness. But the church's tendency, along with all human beings, unfortunately, is to find much more um, enjoyment and much more ability to shine light onto dark places that are outside of ourselves. And Jesus always rewrites the conversation. He always reframes the discussion. And he always turns things back around to ask people, not like the man did who approached Jesus and, and asked, and who is my neighbor? You know, Jesus didn't want to entertain that discussion for how it, how it applied to those outside of this man. Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to get this lawyer to stop asking, who is my neighbor out there? And to instead ask, am I a neighbor? And Jesus' parable does something profound, and that is he didn't shine light on the answer to the man's question. He shined light onto the man's heart behind the question. And when he did, the man was forced to realize the failure I have in my heart to be a loving person is actually the darkness Jesus wants to expose. And so I do not think that the church is primarily called to be the light by merely standing up and telling the world that they are in darkness. No, according to 1 Peter 2, the church bears witness to Jesus by proclaiming to the world how Jesus has, and let me quote 1 Peter 2, 9 again, how Jesus has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so if we keep these two themes together, and we do not separate them, but we keep them together, that Jesus is shining light into the dark places of our hearts, and Jesus is inviting us to join him in shining light onto the dark places of our world, then our testimony, our witness, our light-bearing, yeah, according to 1 Peter 2.9, it's meant to be very, very personal and to be very relational. Here's what Jesus has done to set me free from this particular place of darkness. Are you interested in Jesus setting you free too? That's the idea. That is actual evangelism. That is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And therefore, the amount of light you are willing to allow Jesus to shine into your heart will be in direct proportion to the amount of his light you are capable of shining onto others. This has always been the case, and it will never cease being the case. But our position 
as light bearers, as lampstands in the world, shining light onto the bread of the presence, onto Jesus himself, always involves a willingness to have that same light shined into our own hearts, to be transformed by that light so that the way we shine light on the world is inviting. It is liberating. It's calling them to worship. It's calling them to battle. It's calling them to enter the temple with us. And so let me repeat one last time how I phrase this speaking to someone about the power of Jesus in your life, evangelism might more accurately sound like this. Here's what Jesus has done to set me free from this particular place of darkness. Are you interested in Jesus setting you free too? If they respond with no, they have decided they're not interested in this any longer. But if they say yes, What a privilege you now have to take a moment of your life, a portion of your life that you might have been discouraged in for years and years and years because you could never get out of it. You were stuck. You were caught. You were a slave to sin until Jesus set you free. And guess what? That is the very area where now you have a powerful testimony a powerful proclamation of the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the way that Jesus did it with you by drawing you out, by gently inviting you into the light is the same way he will empower you to invite others out of their darkness into Jesus's light as well. And we will have a lot more to say about this as we continue to work our way through the book. When you take a step back, it is absolutely stunning just to see how beautifully interwoven all of the themes actually are throughout the the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And we are going to continue to see these themes surface again and again. But as I shared in the introductory few episodes, it is my intention to be as pastoral as possible as we walk through this. I do believe John was a pastor when he wrote it. I believe Jesus came as a shepherd and as a pastor to us. And I am, as always, offering myself to be a pastor to you. It's very possible and I am becoming more and more aware of the fact that there are many things in people's lives, particularly believers' lives, that they are not quite sure they feel comfortable having Jesus shine the light of his truth into those parts of their lives. People carry shame and they carry guilt and they're not sure what to do about situations that have either happened to them or situations that they willingly participated in. And they carry these things and they remain distant to Jesus in just those parts of their lives because they're afraid to open themselves up to him. If that is you, I want you to be encouraged that Jesus' invitation to you always remains. He desires to be with you and to know you. And I would love to be an extension of him if you ever wanted someone to talk to about any of these things. Because the light that Jesus wants to shine in the world is here to set the captives free and is to pull people out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
when we are prepared as the church to face our own darkness first, we will become an unstoppable, joyous expression of the presence of Jesus in the world. And that is what I want for the church. This entire podcast is aimed at the church. I want the church and the Christians in it to rightly think about our God and to rightly think about ourselves and to know that true freedom is possible now. So that's all the time we're going to take for this week's episode. I'm so thankful for those of you that continue to tune in. I've noticed a few additional listeners since we've begun Revelation, which my wife suspected would be the case, and that's always exciting. But feel free to share this with others if you think there'll be additional people that would be interested in listening. I'd love to hear more interaction from you, gain a few more people to listen who might be encouraged by these things so that we can strengthen the church together. Until next time, have a great week.